Hello and welcome to The Conversation Weekly. This week we'll be speaking to artists and researchers at universities in Australia and the UK to bring you three stories exploring how the arts help us deal with the challenges life throws at us. We'll hear about a project in the outskirts of Sydney using photography to bring people back together again after the pandemic. It is a way of us coming back together after a period of kind of social distancing and being apart. We're also going to hear about the importance of art in Indigenous culture in Australia. You're reliving those moments, you're being able to address hardship and sort of help the community deal with it. And how the Second World War led to the birth of public arts funding in Britain. During the wartime and post-war period, the arts were going to be essential for rebuilding that sense of nationhood. I'm Dan Marino in San Francisco. And I'm Gemma Ware in London. You're listening to The Conversation Weekly, the world explained by experts. This episode of the show is supported by the UK-Australia Season Patrons Board, the British Council and the Australian Government as part of the UK-Australia Season. The season reflects on the two countries' shared history, explores their current relationship and imagines their future together. Gemma, do you remember the first time you saw a live performance after the depths of the coronavirus lockdown? I do. I was walking along the street and I just happened upon this group of guys who'd set up a drum kit and a bass amp and they were jamming away on the pavement outside a station. And I just felt moved by it in a way that I didn't think I would when I saw live music again. I must have really, really missed it. What about you? Yeah, I had a super similar experience. I was skating through Golden Gate Park here in San Francisco. There was a little jazz trio set up near a little garden. And it was so nice to just be standing around with a group of people commiserating together. And I think a lot of people have discovered during the pandemic just how important cultural experiences and sharing them with other people are to their well-being. And this is a pretty big question about the arts and culture and what it means to people that we're going to be diving into in this episode. And to do that, we'll be hearing three stories, two from Australia and one from the UK, about the role art plays in helping people recover after moments of crisis. To kick off, we are joined by reporter Olivia Rosenman in Sydney. Hello, Olivia. Hi, Dan. Hi, Gemma. Hi, Olivia. So tell us, Olivia, what are the COVID restrictions like currently in Sydney? So we are right about to lift basically all of our restrictions. Um, We're doing away with masks in most settings. We're getting rid of our check-ins. And uh, it's also a time that the cases are surging once again. So... Uh, things might just be about to get a whole lot more interesting. Right. So this is a moment where people are trying to navigate what risks they're willing to take and trying to get used to being back in in the city again. And and you've actually got a story for us about that and an artist who's been exploring a project around this this question, right? Yeah, that's right. This story is about a new project by an artist called Shireen Fard, and she's an associate professor in the School of Design at the University of Technology here in Sydney. And I met with her recently at an outdoor photo shoot that is part of this art project. It's not just about um, sort of re-navigating and renegotiating the world and public space after COVID. It's also about responding to the residents and people who work and play in that area um, and how they're feeling about a whole lot of construction that's been going on in that part of Sydney called Parramatta. So there's some really big infrastructure projects, a lot of offices trying to move out of the city to this area, and it's basically been a big construction zone for a couple of years. And they give us a serious space now. And just sit up a little bit. You're listening to the sounds of an outdoor photo shoot in the middle of an urban square in Sydney, Australia. I don't like getting photos taken. I look stupid. You don't look stupid at all. You look very smiley. You've got a wonderful smile. It's late on Friday morning. It's extremely windy and unseasonably cold for what should be a midsummer day just two weeks before Christmas. You can smile now. We're in Parramatta, a major suburb 24 kilometres west of downtown Sydney. Parramatta was the home of the Darug people for tens of thousands of years. Now it's the central business district of the greater Western Sydney area and is one of the most diverse places in the country, with half of its residents born overseas. <laughs> Look how serious you are, man. Yeah, no, I like this, son. Would you, would you say he's 65? 
And today, some of those residents are having their photos taken for an art project called Being Together, Parramatta Yearbook. That's movie I love that. That's <laughs> it's presented by the Museum of Contemporary Art, and the artist behind it is Shireen Fard. Thank you, Thank so you very much. much. Thank Sorry, I'm late. No, no, no. Day, my God. <laughs> I'm Shireen Fard. I am an artist working with photography and video, uh, making portraits usually of people. The project I'm working on at the moment has been commissioned by the MCA C3 West with Parramatta City Council and it involves working with the community in Parramatta and involving uh, members of the public in a series of um, group portraits and individual portraits with me, the artist. The project is called Being Together, a Parramatta Yearbook. And I might just set the scene for our listeners. We're in Shireen's garden and there's a dog that we can hear in the background that really wants to know what's happening over here. But it's a really gorgeous setting, a beautiful green back garden with lots of native plants. And I don't know what kind of bird that is. Um, tell me, why a yearbook? A couple of years ago, I volunteered to photograph my daughter's final primary school year for their yearbook. And um, I'd, I'd come been fascinated with school portraits for a long time, the way in which we organise ourselves together or we are organised institutionally together for these rituals. Yeah, so I think the yearbook also marks a moment in time and being together in the project's title certainly marks this moment. You know, Sydney being in lockdown for most of this year, um, Parramatta being one of the local government areas that was in a hard lockdown. So the being together in the yearbook is a way of us coming back together after a period of kind of social distancing and being apart. The, the yearbook is also playful. It's a playful document where we kind of, you know, come together and we can be serious in the group portrait, but we can also clown around. Can you just sort of describe the setup and the process getting the pictures and, and how you're going to put it all together? I'm working with a photographer, Pam Pirovich. She used to be my student and she's far surpassed me with her technical skills. She now works as a commercial photographer. So she's actually... Uh, responsible for taking the photographs while I'm actually in front of the camera. We've worked together a lot, you know, coming up with the technical parameters of the photos so that they do look like school photographs. They have a similar sort of lighting. Because it's in public space and it's an invitation to the public to come and take a photograph with me, to be in this yearbook, you know, it needs to have a visual presence in the city that is inviting. So we've created it to really... Uh, look like a stage with all the photographic equipment visible, a green screen when the weather permits, you know, reflectors. So there's a lot of gear around and people get very excited when they see a lot of photographic gear. So that in itself is kind of inviting. So people can come and sit on this bench and face the camera. If it's a larger group, we have some people standing behind and some people seated on the bench. And first, uh, there's candid photographs that Pam's taking of me talking to the subjects who are participating, asking them their names, what they do, having a conversation, introducing the project generally to them. Once we've taken candid portraits, then I instruct them to look at the camera and smile and we do a few smiley shots. Then um, I ask them to be serious and to put on a neutral face. Sometimes that can sound ambiguous, what a neutral expression is. So I'll say, try and be serious. So when I look at the photographs, you can see that there's these varied expressions and poses being performed for the camera. Certainly the ones where we're talking to each other and interacting are the most interesting. Little interactions that would ordinarily sit outside of the framework of the school portrait. You want us just to sit? Sit, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And I don't have a lippy, Sophie. Are you, can you share lippy in COVID oh, yeah, times? Yeah, we don't mind. That's good. We have a double vax yeah. and everything. So. Yeah, we'll be triple vax soon. I know. We're looking for lipstick. <laughs> Sorry, but I don't, ah, don't worry about it. Oh, if no, you no, can't no, find I have to put a lippy on. Okay. 
Okay, we ready? Now sit oh, side by yeah. side. Oh, yeah. Yes. Okay, so we're going to look at the camera yeah. and we're going to be serious. Just a neutral. Smiling. No smile, oh. just serious. Now we're going to smile. Okay. <laughs> Something I remarked was that, so there was both the kind of the interaction that they had with you but then there's also this almost for many of them almost like a dialogue with themselves where often they're criticizing themselves and that you know like oh I'm not I'm not a smiley person or oh I don't want them to see my double chin you know taking someone's portrait is a really vulnerable moment for that person so anyone who volunteers to be photographed by me I'm cognizant that they are putting themselves out there making themselves vulnerable um, allowing themselves to be uncomfortable for the moments that we take the photographs. They're also allowing me to have control over what image gets put out into the public space. And there is all of these things that happen between you, the conversation like, how do I look? Do I look okay? Or I'm not smiley. Or, oh, I look terrible in photos. Or, oh, my fat bits around my waist. Can you see that? And I think that's amazing because the camera in that context we become kind of unguarded. Like, I'm a total stranger, and you saw that within seconds it goes from being, hi, uh, my name's Shireen, I'm an artist, would you like to participate in this project, to, oh, yeah, oh, but what about my, you know, nose, or, oh, can I put lipstick on, or, oh, can you make me look skinny, or, you know, so it's like letting you in on their insecurities very quickly. Back in Parramatta Square, I spoke to Pedro de Almeida from the Museum of Contemporary Art about C3 West, the broader project behind Being Together. A key aspect of C3 West is taking the artists and the art out of the gallery. So my name's Pedro de Almeida. I'm the senior curator of C3 West at the Museum of Contemporary Art. So the MCA, for people who don't know Sydney, it's, it's on Sydney Harbour down at Circular Quay. It's a very iconic part of Sydney, right opposite the Sydney Opera House. But the C3 West projects focus not in the centre of Sydney, they're all about the west of Sydney. Can you tell me a bit about the west of Sydney and why that is? So Western Sydney is essentially the largest region within metropolitan Sydney. It's also the most culturally and socially diverse region in all of Australia. Historically, Western Sydney um, has always, goes without saying, had its own culture and creativity, uh, including artists, of course. But what it was kind of essentially lacking until really the 90s was contemporary art spaces. So I guess one thing that's important to point out with C3 West is when Lizanne McGregor first, I guess, conceived that idea, there was a real need to showcase and amplify and work with people from this massive, you know, region. Despite the multiple partnerships we've had all around Western Sydney, this is our first uh, partnership with the city of Parramatta, which is pretty exciting. So they approached us, as you can probably hear behind me, Parramatta for the last couple of years has been going, um, everyone hates the word unprecedented these days, but an unprecedented building boom. Um, Not just building, but really a massive transformation on all sorts of levels. So Parramatta was always legitimately its own CBD, of course. But as you can see, there's, um, you know, huge high-rises going up. There's been huge strategic pushes from government for corporations and also government bodies like like Sydney Water and like the Department of Planning, Industry and the Environment, for instance, to decentralise workforces from downtown Sydney and have them come to Parramatta and places like this, including Sydney Olympic Park, to, you know, improve transport networks and, again, just to also have greater representation in the region. And while the building boom is bringing many benefits to Parramatta, it's also been a bit of a nightmare for people who live there. That's something Shireen is responding to with being together. The flash of the camera is shining both a literal and figurative light on the Parramatta community at a very particular point in time. In the package that I received, there was also survey results that council had done with residents asking for their input and their feedback into this urban development. And often you had residents saying that, you know, they felt really dwarfed and quite invisible and that, you know, while the city grew and grew and grew, they felt more and more 
alienated from what was going on and that the Parramatta that they knew was being destroyed by development or that they were invisible. I was interested in foregrounding the people and visualising them literally and their presence in the city against the backdrop of this development and also to kind of capture a moment in time in Parramatta. So in a lot of the pictures you can see, say, a building with cranes and builders and scaffolding, high-vis vests and then an old church from the early 1800s, a tiny little sandstone gate a building from the 1830s that used to be an old pub. So you can see, you can see it's a city being built. Um, go over and have a look. Yeah. Look at all my flower lines. Very nice. Very nice. She got a nice one. They're lovely. Yeah, that one is nice. I like that one. We look yeah. like we've known each other exactly. for a long time. Exactly. <laughs> that one is pretty. Yeah. How many photos are you going to put? I think in the book we can probably have quite a few. Just the, just the good ones. Yeah. Not, not, the, not the ugly ones. Yes. Okay, All right. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That was Olivia Rosenman in Parramatta City. We'll put a link in the show notes to a website explaining a bit more about Shireen's Being Together project and how to get involved. For our second story this week, we're heading from Sydney up the eastern coast of Australia to Brisbane. And to tell the story, we're joined by reporter Rihanna Patrick. Hello, Rihanna. Hi, Gemma. Hey, Dan. Great to have you with us. So, Rihanna, you've got a story for us about Indigenous art in Australia. Yeah, it's about how important art and storytelling are for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders here. In what way is it important? In the way, I guess, that art is used to not only process the trauma of colonisation, but also how it can be used as a way to give voice to other issues and topics. Someone who knows a bit about this is Angelina Hurley. Angelina is a PhD researcher at Griffith University here in Brisbane, but she's also from a well-known artistic family. I met up with her recently to find out about how her dad used art and what the place of comedy is for her. Angelina, it is a wet day and we're looking at these glistening totem poles that were carved by your dad that sit by the Maywa, the Brisbane River, I mean, they look like telephone poles. What what are we looking at here? We're looking at Dad's acknowledgement of five Aboriginal clans. They're actually old um, telephone poles that he carved and sculpted himself, except for at the top where you see the spear-type brass or iron um, rod sticking out of the top of them. There's totem poles. He took them somewhere and sculpted them himself, the shape of them, because they're not straight up and down. There's a wave. And it could have been a representation of the rainbow serpent of the area too. The towering artwork that Angelina is showing me sits at the bottom of Brisbane's Kangaroo Point Cliffs, overlooking the city's central business district and where Maywa, the Brisbane River, snakes its way round as it makes its journey to the sea. The five poles represent the five clans of the Brisbane River catchment area, which includes the Turrbal, Waka Waka, Kubby Kubby, Munanjali and Yugambeer some of the Aboriginal clans that live in what is now known as the Southeast Queensland region. Each pole also represents a star in the Southern Cross. In more recent history, the Southern Cross has been used by non-Indigenous people as a sign of rebellion, a symbol of national identity, and it's probably more recognisable as being on the Australian flag. But for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders, this constellation of stars has many different meanings, spiritual beliefs and uses – like how to travel across other people's country and across the seas. Angelina's late father, Ron Hurley, created this piece in the mid-1990s, and the work also references the creation of the cliffs by the Rainbow Serpent, a being which many Aboriginal nations believe moved across this place, now known as Australia, creating the landscapes we see today. I remember as a kid, you know, like I went through a school area where everything Indigenous was left out of the curriculum, you know, so there was no education or no reference to the people of these places. So maybe now with the trend of, you know, calling Brisbane Mianjin and stuff like that, Miglis might now 
um, white fellows, in case you don't know what that means, can actually identify some Indigenous words and Indigenous place names and stuff like that. So it's necessarily becoming a trend, which is great to see. But, you know, through my school years, there was nothing. We were totally invisible. So no one knew anything. So placing these landmarks, so to speak, and reclaiming culture and land through art it was a goal and agenda of my dad's. Hurley was one of Australia's leading contemporary Aboriginal artists and one of the first Aboriginal artists to fuse Aboriginal and Western notions of art. A natural artist, he pursued his study of it, becoming the first Aboriginal person to graduate from the Queensland College of Art in the early to mid-1970s. Hurley would also blaze a trail into the boardrooms of major art institutions and organisations when he became the first Aboriginal member of the Board of Trustees of the Queensland Art Gallery. But art for Hurley wasn't just what was created on canvas or in sculpture. It was about making visible again what had been forgotten. Angelina, do you know what drew your dad to art? Why he chose that path? Very annoyingly, he was just naturally good at it. (laughs) There's all these stories from him as a young kid where all the elders would just go, my God, that kid can draw. You know, dad was just a really good drawer. You'd go, dad, can you draw me a you know, anything, draw me a clown. And it would, he'd just get a pen and just draw a clown. It would just be, yeah, here you go, you know. Um, yeah, he, was, uh, he was naturally talented that way. Um, but he also, yeah, his purpose for doing that was to put an Indigenous perspective and culture and knowledge into that medium of the industry of the arts and to maintain culture and to revive it and to have our voice heard and spoken in our culture physically on representation for people to see that we are here, this is our culture, these are our stories, and they're telling them from our point of view. And I'm going to remember my mob and my elders. And I guess when we talk about art and we talk about connection to country, we are also talking about the fact that if country is sick, we too are sick. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Do you think it was more for him about a process of healing, a process of connection, a process of maintaining health? Yeah, for sure, because it's, it's catharticism. And, and, and when you're expressing those things, whether it's verbally or visually, you're reliving those moments, you're being able to address hardship, if, if that's the case, and sort of help the community deal with it too, in a way. Like, here's a painting called My Grandmother's Country, which is about my great-grandmother being taken as a domestic from the Gurangarang country. She actually ran away from, the, from being a domestic and they set a search party out in the bush to find her, so she ran away and they never caught her. If you see the photo, it looks... Uh, <laughs> a non-Indigenous person looked at it one time and said, that looks very violent. So the occurrence of a search party going out and finding her probably was very violent in the whole story. So he could have represented... This is very traumatic, you know, so she was taken away and then had to go and find a mob again, make her way back home. But the story that he's heard from elders about massacres and stuff like that, that our mob went through and representing that. So it's all about healing in the sense of acknowledging that history that white Australia has never acknowledged because they pretend these things didn't happen to us. You know, they debate dispossession and they debate wars and and all, all of that sort of stuff. Those arguments are still going on today, that these things didn't happen, but they did. And just to clarify what Angelina means by mob, mob is a colloquial term for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders, which is used by Indigenous people here to refer to themselves and their community. Hurley's work was very much about reminding people that underneath where they walked every day lay a rich and ancient story. Aboriginal art is the first art of this country now called Australia. It communicates history, story, language and culture. But art is also more than this. Put simply, art is our voice. Our stories are so important. We're all storytellers and we have very important, rich, vibrant stories to tell. From people doing rock paintings to, to contemporary works of art, we're telling a story and I think... What I got from it is it's, it's really important for us to express those stories and to tell them and not keep them to ourselves, to give a different perspective and a narrative of us from our perspective, from a non-colonial perspective of what our life is and who we are and how we live in this country. We've survived it and we've adapted to a contemporary lifestyle and we've journeyed. So there's a lot of stories that I hear all the time through people I just like, man, can you just write that down? Can you, you know, write a poem? Can you write a book? Can you film that? It's just a great story. And there's still lots of stories that nobody hears. Like in art, healing through art too. For example, um, the artist Betty Muffler 
and her work was commissioned by Vogue and put on the front cover. And she's a cultural healer and a doctor and she's walked country healing places and she's from South Australia, so I've never seen this, but I've seen elders do this back on my land where they walk through country and they sing it and they talk to it. They announce themselves, they let them know they're here so they're connected to country, so they have permission. So she's one of those healers, but she's also putting that practice into her visual artwork. So this amazing, stunning work. That was great to see. And I've worked in, <laughs> in many jobs. And when I was doing art project work and CCD community cultural work, you can see when you go to community and you're doing workshops with mob to revitalise and, you know, renew their art practice and maintain cultural practice, how people's faces light up, how that affects the community. I used to go around with Dad when he used to do workshops like that and teach and, you know, how excited the community would get and all this amazing product and, and artistic practice that would come out of just one visit. It would enliven people and there would be something for them to look forward to. While Angelina grew up involved in various parts of her father's artistic life, she found her voice through another kind of artistic expression. For her, comedy offered a way of telling stories through humour and a passion which led her to pursuing this as part of her postgraduate work. But as Angelina explains, her father also influenced her decision to do a PhD exploring Aboriginal cultural perspectives on humour. Dad, as a person, was a very humorous person too. So he was sort of bigger than life. He was out there. And, like, not only did he work in metaphors, but humour was very embedded in his, like, tongue-in-cheek. He used to make fun of politicians and stuff all the time in characters, for example, when we were kids. And so it was the humour really spoke to me. And it's a natural part of, I think, you know, Murray's anyway, (laughs) to be specific, you know, Aboriginal people from Queensland. The humour is very predominant in our community. And it's just telling a yarn and a good story, you know. Like, I just was interested in keeping our family and our stories alive through that funny communal stories and yarning. That It's more than just a yarn and a joke. There's usually a big story involved in the before you get to a punchline, for example. Or it's just, yeah, this is good education. There's moral and ethical lessons to be taught. Dad would exaggerate some of those, mind you, to make us do things as kids, <laughs> to do our chores or whatever, those sort of things. In her own work, Angelina has explored this use of humour to tell her family's stories in a different way. I did a really short film I wrote about my grandma who, to cut a long story short, she had a pet chicken and it drowned in the backyard in a flood and she was on the front page of, or the third page of the local paper for resuscitating it and bringing it back to life, you know. So that was what she was remembered for, this really funny event, you know, and that was her little claim to fame. And I always say to people, you know, I could always, I could have written her story differently and said that she was a widow, she never had any kids, but she looked after eight boys that weren't hers, but she took them all in and adopted them. She was poor, she was a struggling mum in the in the suburbs of Brisbane looking after a lot of kids like a lot of other families and stuff like that. I just didn't want her to be remembered like that. I wanted her to be remembered for something that actually brought her joy and the family joy and a story that went around for ages and we've never forgotten about her. And it also spoke to her as a character, as an Indigenous woman, that she was this eccentric and she had all these different animals. It's just like a different side of a narrative of an Indigenous woman that might not immediately come to mind when other people are thinking of who they are, you know? It's like, I saw her a different way. So did my father. Angelina says despite the hard life her grandmother lived, it's a good example of how Indigenous people have used humour not only as a way to laugh, but also as a way to heal. It's a survival and healing tool in itself. You know the old cliche, if you don't laugh, you cry, that's always there. So the, the terrific circumstance of colonisation, our mob have that in bucket loads. There's so much humour, yeah, what else could they do? It's just a different medium. Dad used visual arts, which I could, I could very well do, but I just wanted to do it a different way. I like yarning, as you can tell. It's hard, can be hard sometimes to shut me up. So, but yeah, I like a good yarn and I like a good laugh, you know. So, and if you can join those two things together, it's great. The way that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders use art is not in the same way that non-Indigenous practitioners view it. It's not one discipline that is practised, but one which brings together all the art forms as an interlinked, connected being, which allows movement between all its artistic facets. It's not just about expression, but a way to heal, tell history 
continue culture, and most importantly, allow the voices of Indigenous people to be heard in a way which speaks to you. It's part of our being, it's who we are. You can't separate it. You can't separate the practice from the culture, from, you know, from who we are as a people and our existence. I think it's hard for me to explain that holistically because um, if I take um, the, the artist Betty Muffler again for an example, as she said through that piece when I was reading about her that, that she's tired of explaining to people her practice and who she is and why she does it. There's always has to be a, a definition attached to who we are and what we do. Sometimes things just are what they are and a belief is a belief and a practice is a practice. You know, there's no... You don't need to constantly critically analyse and assess what this... is. It's just if you don't understand it, you don't understand it because you're not an Aboriginal person or a Torres Strait Islander person, you're not a First Nations person because you're not part of that culture and you just have to believe that what we tell you is true, is the way it is because that's the way it's been given to us and that's the way that we've expressed it. All our lives. That was Rihanna Patrick there reporting from Brisbane, Australia, talking to Angelina Hurley, a PhD candidate at Griffith University. For our final story today, we're heading back quite a ways in history to a moment when the world was going through a very different but also very intense type of crisis. Not a pandemic, but a war, the Second World War. And here in Britain, life during the war was tough. There were nightly bombing raids, people were dying regularly. That's not the most conducive conditions for creating art. No, right, but it didn't mean that people's love for art and culture just dried up. In fact, it gained an added importance because of the war. And I've been hearing about how, in Britain, this wartime era actually saw the birth of something pretty remarkable that's still with us today. For the first time ever, state money was spent to subsidise the arts. And the recipient of this taxpayer money was a theatre in Bristol in the southwest of England. So I went there to meet somebody to help tell that history. Hi, you must be Kirsty. Hi there, great to meet you. Nice to meet you. This is Kirsty Sedgman. She's a lecturer in theatre at the University of Bristol. I'm meeting her outside the Bristol Old Vic Theatre. It calls itself the longest continuously running theatre in the English-speaking world. It was built in the 1760s as the Theatre Royal on King Street, which today is a lively cobbled street near the river in Bristol. OK, Kirsty, we're standing outside Bristol Old Vic. Tell me, what does it look like from the outside? The old part of the building, which is the Cooper's Hall, is traditional, big, quite imposing, buttery Georgian stone. But to its left is the new frontage of Bristol Old Vic, which is plate glass windows, big, black, heavy doors, and a nice neon red sign that says, come on in. Why don't we go in? It says, come on in. Let's go. Kirsty's research focuses for the most part on theatre audiences, and she's been researching Bristol Old Vic's history as part of a project funded by the British Academy. Our part of that history starts in 1935, when a man called Herbert Fargen, a prominent writer and theatre critic from London, takes a trip to Bristol written a feature programme for the BBC and he went down to Bristol to help out at the final rehearsals. And we've actually got, thanks to the wonderful people at the University of Bristol Theatre Collection, uh, a copy of an account that he wrote subsequently about his trip to Bristol. So do you want to read a little section of of the opening of it there for us? Absolutely. The title is England's Oldest Theatre. Before I left London, I'd been advised by a friend who knew me to be a passionate pastist on no account to miss visiting the Theatre Royal since it was the oldest theatre in England. I don't remember just where in Bristol that darling theatre is, she wrote, in a slummy part of the town, I think, near the water, but it may be demolished. So what does he find when he gets there? He walks in and the theatre's still standing and he's delighted to find that it's actually still in service as a theatre. But the service, he says, wasn't very dignified. 
Here in this unique and historic building, he writes, rather ramshackle companies with very twice nightly reviews were still performing. And he is amazed at how well preserved it is. He says that when you stepped into the auditorium, you stepped straight into the 18th century. In short, still standing was this matchless setting for plays, a precious and neglected heirloom without a parallel anywhere else in the British Isles. And what I love about this letter is how snobby he is about the kinds of fare that Bristol audiences are accepting at this time in the mid-1930s. After seeing the theatre, Fajan decides he's got to do something. gets into a series of correspondence, first of all with some theatre bigwigs in London, but also some of Bristol's elite, about how awful it is that this amazing preserved Georgian building is being degraded through the performances of low entertainment. And wouldn't it be great if we could start a campaign to buy the theatre, or at least to put on a season of Georgian plays? Varjan writes to the owners of the theatre to see if they're willing to sell, but he gets nowhere, and his pleas to his rich friends to step in and buy the place go unheeded. Then, in 1939, Britain goes to war. Bristol has an important harbour and aeroplane factory and is hit heavily by German bombs in what later becomes known as the Bristol Blitz. The theatre itself never burnt, but a lot of neighbouring buildings did, and he says the Germans nearly got it with a bomb, but it just about escaped. For the most part, the theatre lies quiet during the war. And then, in January 1942, the two men who own the building die in quick succession. The Theatre Royal goes up for auction. Which is when Herbert Fargen sends a letter to the Times. OK, and, and why does he send this letter? We've got this letter in front of us. He's writing to warn, really, the community of arts lovers in the country that all around England at that time we'd seen amazing old arts institutions being sold for warehouses. That was always his big concern. And there's a lovely quote, if in the hurly-burly of the moment it's allowed to pass into the hands of commercial speculators, it will almost certainly be destroyed and without a murmur although there would be quite a little outcry if it were destroyed by enemy action in an air raid. So this is Fajan, again, feeling that sense of urgency now that the theatre really is under threat and reviving his 30s campaign to save it. Fajan gets some interesting responses to his article, including one from a state-funded organisation called SEMA, the Council for the Encouragement of Music and the Arts. It's the precursor to what's today called the Arts Council. SEMA is set up in December 1939, just after the outbreak of the war. Its goal? To promote artistic activity and preserve British culture. During the First World War, there was a near-total collapse of artistic activity. And people who were in charge of cultural organisations like the BBC were really worried that so-called jovial entertainments would totally replace the production of artistic and aesthetic excellence. And the important thing to remember is that a huge part of Britain's soft power has been built on that self-promotion of the nation as being the birthplace of Shakespeare. Cultural entertainment and art was seen to be a really important nation-forming tool. So that was why Second World War broke out. SEMA was set up to promote artistic activity. And a lot of that work was about entertainment to some degree. So there was work going into training camps and producing artistic but also enjoyable experiences to keep people's spirits up. Seema's remit is not to invest state money in the bricks and mortar of arts buildings. Before the war, the Treasury had offered limited support for a few building-based arts organisations, but it had always been indirectly via the BBC. And Seema isn't planning to change that. And yet from the start, SEMA is being pulled in two directions. Its original slogan is the best for the most, But not everybody agrees over the equal importance of those two words, the best and the most, when it comes to spending taxpayer money on the arts. 
Should it be about providing aesthetic excellence, even if the masses don't necessarily want to see that kind of thing? Or should it be about producing things that are engaged in and embedded within the community, including promoting amateur efforts? And one man clearly in the best rather than the most camp was someone who may be familiar to economics students, John Maynard Keynes. He is a famous economist, but also often described in history books as an unabashed elitist because as the first official chairman of SEMA from the late 1930s onwards, he implanted his own ideals of high culture firmly within SEMA. And so when Fajan writes that letter to the Times as a call to action to save the Theatre Royal in Bristol, someone from SEMA gets in touch. Now, SEMA isn't able to put up money to actually buy the theatre. Remember, it's not been set up to invest in the bricks and mortar of the arts. But SEMA is willing to try and raise awareness of Farshan's campaign. At this point, Farshan is also working with the Georgian group of an organisation called the London Society for the Protection of Ancient Buildings. The Georgian group are seeking donors, and finally they find one. It's an anonymous donor who's described as a prominent Bristol businessman. But this man has no interest in actually running the theatre, and soon he wants his money back. So the Lord Mayor of Bristol decides to launch a big public appeal for funds to buy and refurbish the Theatre Royal. The hope was that the full 25000 would be earned through public contributions, but due to wartime privations, that figure was nowhere near reached. Then, in October 1942, SEMA changes its mind. Kirsty and I are looking at a copy of a newspaper front page from the Daily Telegraph. It's covered in stories about the war. Uh, Three US cruisers were sunk in Solomon's action. But near the bottom is a small article entitled State Money for Theatre. And it reads, the principle of a British state subsidy for the arts has been conceded at last. It comes in the announcement that the Treasury supported SEMA has leased the Theatre Royal Bristol. Kirsty says this decision has had long-lasting significance for public arts funding in Britain. And behind it was a belief that art and culture had an important role to play in the recovery from the war. Keynes goes public and he writes quite a funny article, also in The Times, describing Seema's decision to step in and save the Theatre Royal as an accident born of an undisciplined moment. But then he really does lay it on quite thick about why this decision was so necessary, not just for Bristol, but for Britain as a whole. He says that there is an urgent task at that moment to equip the material frame for the arts of civilization and delight. Seema had previously been thinking really hard about how to apportion money for the civilization and delight for the art bit, but this was the first time that they started pouring money into that frame, essentially a building that would house these kinds of grand cultural experiences, the kind that would rebuild Britain's sense of itself from the ashes of the war. Do you think that the moment that this happened, the the war, the crisis, is kind of a key element of it? Yes, I think that that's what other historians have really pointed out. Because had it not been for that moment of rupture, we could have gone on arguing forever about whether it is appropriate for a nation's taxes to be spent on something that isn't practically applicable, like roads or like rebuilding buildings that were lost in the war. But the reason that Keynes was essentially begged to take up this post was because he had that weight of authority and that ability to talk really quite beautifully about why the arts are such a vital part of national identity. 
The Theatre Royal reopens in 1943 with a gala performance. But it isn't until 1946, the year after the war ends, that the directors announce a company from a prestigious theatre in London called The Old Vic will be taking up permanent residence in Bristol. And Kirsty and I are looking at a programme of the first performance of The Bristol Old Vic. Kind of art deco style red image of a proscenium arch theatre stage. But if you look inside, you can see that on the inside cover, it says the Beau Stratagem by George Farquhar, which was their first performance. And this is just gold, this description, because it says that the object of the Bristol Old Vic is to provide the city with its own classical playhouse, where great plays of the past and new plays of merit are performed by a permanent company. And you can see that same rhetoric about bringing national standards, by which they meant London aesthetic standards, to the regions. You can see that threaded throughout the correspondence over the 40s, the 50s, the 60s, and in many cases into the way that we think about theatre and the arts today. This is the first time Kirsty's been back to the theatre since the pandemic. It was shut for months. Now its foyer is thronging with children here to see a matinee performance just before Christmas. Well, we really saw during COVID how essential the arts and culture are to people. And of course, we couldn't come into theatre spaces, but we saw a proliferation of digital theatre. And yet, at the same time, we saw a lot of rhetoric about lazy artists and loveys who should not necessarily be given theatrical money. So I think that there is this real disjunction between those that saw the arts as a lifeline during COVID, something that kept us feeling connected with each other, something that kept us potentially sane, and those who actually are seeing this current moment as an opportunity to further withdraw that support from the arts. It's a very different kind of moment to the one that we saw during the wartime and post-war period, where it was really felt that the arts were going to be essential for rebuilding and strengthening that sense of nationhood. And I think a battle over aesthetic quality and standards is at the heart of this, because Keynes was very good at saying that I, as a posh white man, know what good theatre and good art is. And I believe that if we give it to the people, then the nation will be better and will be enriched by it. It was these beliefs which essentially saved the Theatre Royal in Bristol and made Treasury funding for arts buildings an official part of Arts Council policy. But they also leave Kirsty a bit uncomfortable and she's wary about similar debates going on today as theatres try new ways to bring in different, less traditional types of audiences. What we see every time industries become more representative is those battles over what counts as good art become even fiercer. And that's what we're seeing throughout, I think, the current discourse, the sense that the art that's being produced isn't even good anymore. Actually, of course, a lot of cultural production today is excellent and amazing but potentially it's trying to speak to different audiences or it's conceptualising what art and theatre can do in a radically different way. That was Kirsty Sedgman from the University of Bristol. We'll put a link to a story that she wrote about arts funding during the pandemic in the show notes to this episode. To end this week's episode, we've got some recommended reading from Gregory Rako. 
Hello, my name is Gregory Reiko. I am an international affairs editor for The Conversation, based in Paris. The first article I would like to talk about is about the current tension on the border between Russia and Ukraine. This article was written by Christine Duguin Clément from the Paris Institute of Business Administration. The title of the article poses a question we are all asking ourselves. Should we be alarmed by the new sounds of boots on the Russian-Ukrainian border? Some observers predict an imminent invasion of Ukrainian territory. Others say that Russia is acting in this way only in order to have an additional element of negotiation in its tense discussions with the West, which concern numerous disputes, such as the Belarusian case, the repression of the opposition inside Russia, or the famous Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline. Kristin says that all these arguments are convincing, but she warns that the repetition of this kind of episode is a risk in itself, because even a small spark could have consequences that neither Kiev, Moscow, nor the West have foreseen. The second article is more specifically about France. It's written by Luis Martinez from the Institut d'études politiques de Paris, and it analyzes the extremely deteriorated relationship between France and Algeria. This relationship has never been easy since Algeria gained independence from France in 1962, but recently the link between Paris and Algiers has become even more strained after a statement made by Emmanuel Macron during a meeting with young French people of Algerian origin last October. The French president wondered whether, and I quote, there was an Algerian nation before French colonization. All this in a context where France is losing its economical positions in Algeria and is very upset with Algeria's refusal to fully associate itself with French anti-terrorist action in the Sahel. Thank you very much. Gregory Reiko there in Paris. That's it for this week. The Conversation Weekly will be taking a short break over the holiday season, but we'll be back in your podcast feeds for the 6th of January. In the meantime, thank you to all the academics who've spoken to us for this episode. Thanks to the team at Bristol Old Vic Theatre, in particular Anika Rawat and Harriet Wilson, and to Joe Ellsworth and Athene Bain at the University of Bristol's Theatre Collection. And thanks to the Conversation Editors Susie Freeman-Green, Holly Squire, Naomi Joseph and Stephen Kahn, and to Alice Mason for our social media promotion. You can find us on Twitter at TC underscore audio, Instagram at theconversation.com, or email us at podcast at theconversation.com. And don't forget to sign up for our free daily email. There's a link in the show notes. The Conversation Weekly is co-produced by Mend Marawani and me, Gemma Ware, with sound design by Eloise Stevens. Reporters in this episode were Olivia Rosenman and Rihanna Patrick. Our theme music is by Nita Sell. I'm Dan Marino. Thank you all for a wonderful first year, and we'll see you next one. <laughs>